Well, good morning. It is good to see you today. Uh, Casey did, in fact, steal my joke uh, about him wearing flannel. Um, but I was trying to come up with a skinny jean joke or something, but it just wasn't there. Um, I'll get him back later, though. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and meet me in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, 2 Corinthians 8 is where we're going to be. Um, before we dive in, I want to take just a minute and pray. Uh, it's not lost on me that there's much to pray for in not just our church, and not just in our lives, but in our world today. Uh, first, we have the awesome opportunity uh, to host our first Central and Espanol preview service this morning. So for the first time in Central's history, uh, we will be worshiping as one church in two languages this morning which is exciting uh, and excited to see all that the Lord is going to do. Uh, but then also, uh, we uh, if you have paid attention to the news, then you uh, know the situation happening in Israel right now. Uh, what you may not know is we actually have a family from our church on the ground in Israel right now, and then we have some friends of our church who are there as well. And so we want to stop and we want to pray for them as well. So uh, would you pray with me now? Uh, Father, thank you so much for uh, your mercy. Uh, Father, thank you for this time that we can come and we can gather together uh, this morning to lift up your name, to, to celebrate and to worship and to praise the great I am. God, we don't, we don't have a kind of good God. We don't have a decent God. We have a great God. And God, we are grateful that we can come in and we can meet you. And Father, uh, we pray that you would bless our first Central and Espanol preview service. God, we pray uh, that you would be uh, high and lifted up uh, in just a few moments over uh, in the hangar, God, that you would work and that you would draw people to yourself, uh, even in that first service. And then, Father, we, we pray for our family, our, our friends there in Israel. Father, we pray that you'd keep them safe. Lord, you, we pray that you would help them to make their flight at the right time. Uh, Father, we pray that you'd work in that situation. And Lord, we, we recognize, we understand that none of this caught you off guard. God, that you were surprised by none of it, but that you're working and you're active. And Father, we want to see how you're going to move and how you're going to work. But Father, we also want to pray that Psalm 122.6 prayer. Lord, we pray for peace in Jerusalem today. Father, we, we pray that you would work in ways that only you can. And Father, we trust you with it. Lord, we pray this and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 is where we're going to be. Now, I have something with me. I typically don't carry much cash with me, uh, but uh, I grabbed this dollar bill uh, today uh, because I was thinking about uh, this uh, this week. I was thinking about dollar bills. I was thinking about the things uh, that we write on it. And if you, you pick up a dollar bill, you hold it, you look at it, you'll notice several things uh, are written on it. But there's a statement on it uh, that uh, has been on our, uh, our currency uh, for decades, really for centuries at this point, and it's that, that statement, that phrase, in God we trust. Now, I find it ironic that we put in God we trust on our money when it's been at least my observation that oftentimes what we do is we put in money we trust on our God, right? That we, uh, we think, uh, we want to say in God we trust, but really so oftentimes what it is is it's in money we trust, isn't it? It's in dollar bills that we trust. I, I told the first service that too often times we have our mind on our money and our money on our mind, right? That, uh, that that is where we spend our time thinking. That's what we spend our time scheming about, right? How are we going to use it? How are we going to make more, whatever it may be? And yet what we see as we look at the scriptures is that our God offers us a better way, doesn't he? 
You know, in God we trust, that, that was signed into law by uh, President Dwight D. Eisenhower on July 30th, 1956. And there's some, there's some historical reasons for it. There, there's some different things that we don't have time to get into now. But, but wouldn't it be great if that wasn't just a national motto that we write on our dollars, but that it, if it was also the cry of our hearts as a nation, that in God we trust. Now, I can't speak for our nation, but I think that we as a church, that we want to be known as a church that trusts our God. Right, that he is in whom we trust. And so uh, Casey mentioned the Imagine Initiative a few minutes ago, and we introduced that last week. And if you weren't here, and we would love to talk with you about it. I hope you picked up one of those books as you came in, one of those workbooks. It's got some information, and it's also got a place where you can take notes uh, on the sermon, and so you can find that uh, towards the back of the book. But as we think about this, as we, we think about this, man, we want to trust God. And really what imagine is, is it's, it's an invitation to trust our God. One of the things that we see, that we're going to see here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 is this. Is that if we can trust Jesus with our eternity, we can trust Jesus with our generosity. Right? If, if you can trust Jesus with your eternity, then you can trust Jesus with your generosity. So look with me here at 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 8, and we're going to read down to verse 12. Uh, let me invite you to stand as we honor God's word here as we read it together. Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8. The Spirit says to us this morning, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. We're going to stop right there. This is God's word. You can be seated. Would you pray with me once again? God, we want to hear a word from you this morning. God, we, we want to hear what you would have us to hear. We want to hear what you say. And so, Lord, we pray that you would speak now. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you can trust Jesus with your eternity, you can trust Jesus with your generosity. And here in this passage, we see a, a few a few ways that we trust our God. Now, over the next few weeks, we're going to spend some time in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 2 Corinthians chapter 9, hearing and seeing what does the Lord say through the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth about their generosity. And so we see first here that if you can trust Jesus with your eternity, you can trust Jesus with your generosity. And we see this, that we have the opportunity to trust him. We have the opportunity to trust him. Now, there are few things more frustrating than a missed opportunity. Maybe it's a missed opportunity at a new job. Maybe it's a missed opportunity at a relationship. Maybe it's a missed opportunity at a business deal or at an experience or whatever it is. But there are few things that are as frustrating as a missed opportunity. But Paul here, he's writing to the Corinthians and he's speaking to them and he's speaking to us and he's encouraging us, don't miss the opportunity to trust God with your generosity. Don't miss the opportunity to trust him with what he's calling us to do. Now, the church at Corinth, this is a well-known church in the New Testament and it's well-known for all of the wrong reasons, right? It's well-known as a church that was divided, 
This church was tolerating sin. This church was acting like they were mature and acting like they were spiritual, but they were turning a blind eye to all of the things that God had said in his word about how they were to live. And so Paul, he writes 1 Corinthians and he writes to, uh, to correct them and to encourage them and to confront them on sin in their lives. Now what we know is that 1st and 2nd Corinthians aren't the only letters that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. In fact, in his letters, Paul talks about other letters that he's written to the church at Corinth, but God in his wisdom and in his grace, he's, he's preserved and he's deemed that we only need these two letters uh, that Paul wrote. And, and so here in 2nd Corinthians, it's written about a year after 1st Corinthians, and it's written in response to a letter that the Corinthians had sent back to Paul as a response to that first letter. And here in 2 Corinthians, what Paul does is first he has to defend his ministry. He defends his right to be an apostle. Now, I don't know about you. There's a lot of things I want my church to be known as. I don't want my church to be known as the church that doesn't like Paul, right? But that's where Corinth finds themselves. He writes them to encourage obedience, to encourage them to continue to do what they've been doing, and finally, he writes them to warn against rebelling against the gospel. Here in 2 Corinthians, he, he, he spends the end of the letter encouraging them to beware of rebellion and instead to embrace the gospel and live according to God's word. Now here in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, this is in the middle of the letter. This is where Paul is turning his attention from defending his ministry. He's now turning his attention to encourage the Corinthians in their obedience. And he spends the first seven verses of chapter 8 talking about another church. He talks about the church in Macedonia. In this church in Macedonia, these were believers who were struggling they were suffering, they were poor, they had great need, and yet Paul holds them up as an example to the Corinthians. He says, look at this church in Macedonia. They're small, they're struggling, they have great need. And what Paul says is that they were anxious to give. They were anxious to give to support what the Lord was doing in and through other churches around the world. And then he comes to the Corinthians and he says, look at the Macedonians and how they're giving. Now he says, Corinthians, look at your giving. Are you as anxious as you once were to continue in this? And so look, look here at verse eight. He says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. So notice he says, I'm not commanding you to give. I'm not saying you must give. He says, instead, I'm, I'm saying that this is going to show that your love is genuine. Now there at the beginning of verse 8, he says, I say this. We need to ask, what is the this that he's talking about there? If you were to jump back into those first seven verses, that's what he's talking about. But look at verse 7 of chapter 8. Look at the way that Paul describes this giving. He says, but as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, See that you excel in this act of grace also. What's this act of grace? Well, this act of grace is the giving. It's the generosity that Paul had been talking about. Now, why would he talk about it as an act of grace? Here's why Paul would talk about giving as an act of grace. Giving is an act of grace because it demonstrates that we have experienced God's grace. Right? When we have experienced God's grace, then we do acts of grace. 
right? Maybe you've heard of random acts of kindness, right? Well, we want to do gospel-fueled acts of grace, right? Gospel-fueled acts of generosity. And so he says, I'm not commanding you to do this. I'm encouraging you to do this. In fact, he, he says that, that this giving, that this is for you before it's for anyone else. It's so that others would, would see that they aren't just all talk and no action, but it would prove that their love is genuine. Notice that that's where Paul roots this appeal. That's where he roots this encouragement. He, not in a command, but in love. He, he says, as you give, it will show that your love is genuine. Now he's explicit. This, this isn't a command. That generosity should flow from love. Because understand this. Forced generosity is not generosity, right? Whenever, when it comes to tax season, maybe you've had to pay in before and you write that check to the IRS, you write that check to the government and you send it, that is not an act of generosity, right? That is an act to keep you out of prison is what that is, right? Generosity isn't something that can be forced, right? We don't write that check and then send a card that says, hey, hope this blesses you IRS. No, right? We, we send this and say, leave me alone for a year, right? Uh, because we, uh, it's not generosity. But see, God is pleased when our giving is voluntary and not forced. See, if love for God and others is genuine, then understand this, giving and generosity will be natural. That if our love is genuine, then generosity is the natural overflow. It's the natural outworking of that love. But Paul presents here an opportunity to give. And he presents it that way on a purpose. He presents it as an opportunity. This is an opportunity for the Corinthians to show that their love is genuine. This is an opportunity for the Corinthians to show that what they have said about the gospel, they really believe about the gospel. That if... The gospel needs to go to all people. If all people need to hear the gospel, then what Paul is saying is that this is an opportunity for you to show that you really do believe that because as you give, it helps the gospel go around the world. It's an opportunity to show that they've trusted Jesus with their eternity and that they trust him with their generosity. The question is, do they really believe that? Do they really believe that if they can trust Jesus with their eternity, then they can trust Jesus with their generosity? And that's not just a question for the Corinthians, that's a question for you and me today. Do we believe that we can trust Jesus with our eternity? And if we believe that we can trust Jesus with our eternity, do we really believe that we can trust him with our generosity? Do we really believe that he is worthy of that kind of trust? See, here's what we know. How you give reveals what you believe and what you love. Jesus says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So when we fail to live generously, it's because we've failed to believe and trust the right things. See, Paul is saying that to the Corinthians, he's saying we have the opportunity to give. We have the opportunity to live generously. The question is, will we take it? You and I, we have the opportunity to give. The question is, will we step into that? So we see that we have the opportunity to trust him. Next, we see this. We have the reason to trust him. We have the reason to trust our God. 
I'm sure you know this, but trust is easy to lose and hard to gain. Uh, I heard one guy say it this way. He said, trust is lost in buckets and it's gained in drops. And I feel that every day. I feel that as a husband. I feel it as a dad. I feel it as a pastor. That one of my prayers every day is, God, help me to walk with integrity. Help me not to do anything to lose the trust of my wife. Help me not to do anything to lose the trust of my kids. Help me not to do anything to, to lose the trust of my church. But what I also feel is I, I feel, and, and maybe you do too, that, that I'm not perfect, right? Some of you are saying, Ethan, you're not perfect. That's right. That's true. I've talked to your wife, right? But, but maybe you feel that as well, that you aren't perfect, that, that you can't stand under that pressure, that you do fail, I do fail from time to time. But when I feel that pressure, here's, here's what I'm reminded of, that I fail, but Jesus never does. Jesus has never once failed us. He has never once failed you. Here's the good news, he never will. And so we have every reason to trust Jesus. Now what Paul's gonna do here in verse nine is he's going to ground the argument that he made in verse eight. In other words, he's gonna give us the reason why the argument in verse eight is valid. Why does it stand? So in verse eight, he says, generosity, it proves the genuineness of love. And in verse nine, he's gonna show why that's true. So look at verse nine. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. First off, notice this. Paul is not introducing the gospel. He's reminding them of the gospel. Their greatest need is that they would remember the gospel. Your greatest need is that you would remember the gospel. My greatest need is that I would remember the gospel. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. He's reminding, he's not introducing, and it's as if he's saying, live generously because you know the gospel. He says, look, I'm, I'm talking to people who they know what the gospel is. They know what the gospel means for them. And so because of that, they should, we should live generously. Now remember, once again, he's not commanding them. Instead, what he's doing is he's applying the gospel to their situation. See, the, the gospel has to motivate, must be our motivation for generosity because the gospel is the only message that changes our hearts. The gospel is the only message that speaks to who we are and where we are. Now, maybe, you have, maybe you've been to a concert or maybe you've sat through a, a, a service or, or, or you've been in a sermon or, or whatever where there are these great appeals made for giving and they give you statistics and they show you pictures and they, they show you all that. When I think of that, I, I think of the ASPCA commercial with Sarah McLaughlin singing in the arms of an angel as pictures of dogs pass me by. It doesn't motivate me to give, it motivates me to mute, right? It, it motivates me to, to, to change the channel. My, my kids, they... They didn't grow up, they're not growing up in the world of commercials. And so that'll come on and say, Daddy, can you press the skip ad button, right? I'm, I'm trying, buddy, I'm changing the channel, right? Maybe, maybe you've been in those kind of appeals. Mark Twain told the story of, of he was going to church one Sunday, he was going to a special service, and he had decided that he was going, and he'd even decided that he was going to give. And the pastor stands up and makes this long appeal on why you should give, and this, and that. And Mark Twain says that not only did he leave there not having given anything, but he took a dollar out of the plate to compensate him for the time that he wasted, <laughs> right? So, 
Maybe, maybe you can identify with that. I would encourage you not to do that today as you leave. Uh, we, have, uh, we would appreciate that. Uh, and if you do, please don't, all right? Um, but maybe you can identify with, with those appeals. And I don't think that statistics are wrong. I don't think that pictures are wrong. And I think that those things are important and they can paint an accurate picture. But if we're thinking that those are ultimately gonna motivate us to obedience, then we have missed it. Because those things don't motivate for very long. Notice Paul doesn't use gimmicks. He doesn't use tricks. He just goes straight to the gospel. And notice how he does it. He maps gospel, he maps the gospel onto our finances. And so he uses financial language to talk about the gospel. Look at verse nine. He says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And you you might think that the gospel only speaks to your eternity. Right, that the gospel speaks to what happens later, but it doesn't speak to what happens right now. Here's what I would encourage you with, to beware of a truncated gospel. Beware of a limited gospel. If the gospel speaks to your eternity, then it must speak to right now. A gospel that doesn't speak to your life right now is a gospel that you've misunderstood. We saw a few weeks ago in 1 Peter 3 about how the gospel speaks to husbands and wives. A few months ago in Ephesians 6, we saw the gospel speaks to, to husbands and wives and parents. We see how the, the gospel throughout the New Testament speaks to problems and speaks to conflict. Here's what I'm confident of. Every problem that you have in your life, the gospel has resources for it. The gospel has something to say to that problem. The gospel has something to say to that issue. And so don't, don't live life thinking that the gospel is just for out there and then God has left me to figure out how to live now. No, God has said, look, because I've taken care of your eternity with the gospel, I'm gonna take care of right now with the gospel. Right? I'm going to, to teach you and to encourage you and to, to show you through the gospel. And so that's what he does here. He, he summarizes the gospel in financial terms. He says, Jesus was rich and he became poor so that we, by his poverty, might become rich. Prior to the incarnation, Jesus sat on the throne. He was the high king of heaven, sitting at the right hand of the Father, enjoying only perfect fellowship and perfect relationship with the Father and all of the benefits that come with being God's only son. But then he gave it all up. He humbled himself, becoming like us, what Paul will say in Philippians 2, taking the form of a servant and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, Christ, who was rich beyond imagination, became poorer than you and I could ever imagine. C.S. Lewis, he said in his book on the incarnation that that if you want to understand, if you want to get the hang of what this looks like, imagine becoming a slug. That's what Jesus did. And so Paul's message is, when we've been changed by the gospel, we cannot help but to be generous. See, stinginess and generosity may reveal a heart that does not understand the gospel. 
We could take it a step further and say it this way, that if your life is not marked by generosity, it may very well be that your life has not been marked by Jesus. Because understand, you and I are never more like Jesus than when we are serving and when we are giving. Do you remember why Jesus said he came? He said, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We are never more like Jesus than when we are serving his people and when we are sacrificing and giving to see the gospel go to the ends of the earth. See, if you you can trust Jesus with your eternity, then you can trust Jesus with your generosity. The question is not just, do we believe that we can trust Jesus with our generosity? Here's the second question. Do we want to trust Jesus with our generosity? Do we want to trust Jesus with our generosity? You know, it's, it's not lost on me that we, we live in one of the wealthiest nations in the world. And ha- have you ever stopped to wonder what you did to deserve that? You and I did nothing to deserve this. It's simply God's grace. It is simply God's kindness. That God has placed us where he has for a reason. He's he's placed us where he has for a purpose. And then now what he invites us to do is he invites us to honor him by giving to him what we only have because of him. By, by giving back to him what he has given to us. And what's so amazing about that is he invites us to give. And as we give, he invites us to be used by him to accomplish his will and his purpose in the world. I mean, what, what greater thing could we give to? What greater thing could we be involved with? See, we have the opportunity to trust him. We have the reason to trust him. And finally, we have the means to trust him. Where we end, Paul, he reminds us once again that he's not giving a command. He's applying the gospel. Look at verse 10. He says, and in this matter, I give my judgment. That word judgment, literally, it means a reasoned conclusion that is explicitly not a command. But Paul, another way he's saying here is that I'm going to give my opinion. I'm going to give my opinion on what this means for you. He says, and in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. But Paul's opinion is that their generosity is ultimately going, going to be a benefit to themselves. Well, how? How is them, how, how's the Corinthians, how, how does this benefit us? Right, you and I, when we give away our money, how does that benefit us? Well, it benefits us because it shows and it reminds and it opens the door for us to see and to know and to feel that we are satisfied not by what we can get, but by who we belong to, right? That we are not going to be satisfied by money. We're not gonna be satisfied by possessions. That those things are are blessings that the Lord has given us and can be leveraged as tools for what the Lord wants to do in the world. See, money and possessions, all those things, they they can't buy happiness. If money and possessions could buy joy, 
Though we've got to believe that celebrities and politicians would be in the news much less often than they are. But money and possessions, that's not the pathway to joy. Jesus is the pathway to joy. Right? Jesus in, invites us to experience that joy. The Corinthians, apparently they had started they had started to give in the past, but they had stopped giving for some reason. Ultimately, they had lost motivation. And understand that Paul's answer to their motivation problem is not a command. He doesn't say, look, I know you lost motivation. I tried to be nice, but now you will give. Right? It's like in parenting, sometimes we'll say to our kids, hey, why, do, why don't you go clean your room? And then they don't clean their room. And it's like, all right, go clean your room, Right? Go, go do it because now it is moved from a suggestion to command. Paul doesn't do that. No, his, his answer to the lack of motivation or to the lost motivation that they have is not a new command. Instead, it's a better understanding and a better experience of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul's assumption is, is that the reason that the Corinthians have stopped giving the way that they had started to is because they've taken their eyes off of Jesus. See, when you see what Christ has done for you, then what happens is, is it's reflected in what you do for others. It's reflected in the way that you love others. Verse 11, Paul encourages them to finish what they had begun. Look at verse 11. He says, so now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. So he commends them. They, they wanted to start. They had a readiness to start giving. Now what he says is let that readiness that you had when you, your heart was captivated by the gospel, let that readiness drive you to complete what you had started. Maybe you know what it's like to want to start something and not finish it. I wonder if I walked into your garage, how many half-finished projects would I find? Uh, or uh, how many half-finished things might might you be hiding in your backyard or wherever it may be but understand this you're not alone in fact you're in the majority of those who start things typically don't finish how many of you successfully kept your new year's resolution from 10 months ago the university of scranton says if some of you're saying oh i knew i was forgetting something <laughs> uh the University of Scranton says that 92% of people who make a New Year's resolution don't finish it. John Acuff wrote a, a book called Finish. This book was a surprise bestseller. It rose to number one on the Wall Street Journal bestsellers list. Because we recognize that we all have a problem of starting things but not finishing things. What Paul is saying here is to let the gospel be your fuel to finish. Verse 11, he says, now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it. Notice this last phrase, out of what you have. But Paul says, look, you have what you need to do what God has called you to. Dane Ortland, he, he says this. He says, gospel-fueled giving does not mean impossible giving. Instead, I think gospel-fueled giving means this, that God has given you everything you need to be obedient to him right now. You, you, maybe you're thinking, man, I would love to be generous one day. One day when I, when I make more money, 
One day when I, I pay off some bills, one day when I have this, or, or one day when I have that, one day when I get to this point or to that point. I had two conversations, I've had two conversations in my life that have been defining moments for me. And they were very similar and they happened with two different people. One, I was with a mentor and uh, I was talking with him about wanting to, to marry Anna and all of my hesitation. And he said, Ethan, if you wait to get married until you can afford it, you will never do it. And then you fast forward a few years and I'm talking with another mentor and talking about having kids. And he says, Ethan, if you wait to have kids until you can afford it, you will never do it. If you wait to be obedient to the Lord until you feel like you have what you need to do it, you will never do it. See, God doesn't call you to do something now that he has not equipped you to do. You and I have everything we need to be obedient to God right now. You and I have everything we need to be blessed by God right now. What he calls us to, he always gives us the grace to do it. Now Paul's speaking here to a church. He's not writing to an individual. He's speaking to First Baptist Church of Corinth. Because all of the churches of the New Testament are Baptist churches, right? Um, I'm only halfway joking. But uh, he, he's, he's speaking to this church and I, I'm trying to put this church in my mind. And I've got to believe that if it's like a typical church, which we have no reason to believe it's not, then what this means is that there were some people who were giving all that they could give to that church. Then there were others who they were giving, but maybe they could give more. And then there were others who they weren't giving at all. And Paul doesn't say, look, if you're not giving, start giving right now. If you can give more, give right now. No, he says if your heart's been captivated by the gospel, then you will want to give. If your heart's been captivated by the gospel, then, then you will want to, to serve God and to serve his mission in this way. What Paul does is he invites them and he invites us to be active in, God, in what God wants to do. That's what God's inviting you and I to today. He, he's saying, look, if you can trust me with your eternity, then, then you can trust me with your generosity. As I've been thinking about this passage this week, I, I, I just wrote down a few questions. First question is this. What could God do if everyone in our church trusted him more deeply? What could God do in and through our church if we all as individuals got really serious about trusting him more deeply together. Uh, last week, if you came in, or even this week, maybe you grabbed uh, one of the books as you came in and, and it had this card in it. Maybe you've got this card, hopefully you've had a chance to look at it. Maybe you've been praying through it this week. If you open this card, it's got some things in it. It's got some information in it. And it has our, it has the dollar goal for the Imagine Initiative, but there's something much more, much more important in this card. On this card, there's a primary goal. That primary goal is 100% participation. 
And the reason we're talking about 100% participation before anything else is because we're asking this question. What would it look like if 100% of our church trusted God more deeply today than we did yesterday? What would God do in us and through us if we trusted him more? What could God do through Central if we got really serious about our faith in him and being faithful to him? I've got to believe that those are the things that revival is made of. But then the, the second question that I wrote down was this is, what could God do in your life? What could God do in my life if we trusted him more completely? And understand this, it's not only what could God do in our church or what could God do in your life. It's this, what does God want to do in your life, but you're not trusting him enough for it? What does God want to do in our church, but we're not trusting him? What does he want to do in your life, but you're not trusting him enough? Uh, here's what I've learned is that uh, life is better lived. Life is more enjoyable when I'm trusting God more. Right? That you and I were made to depend on God. But what happens is, is we believe the lie of the enemy and we think that God was made to depend on us. Understand this about the Imagine Initiative. The Imagine Initiative is not about God needing our money. The Imagine Initiative is about God inviting us to be used by Him with all that we are, with all that we have. The question is, are we going to trust Him? Uh, see, tr trusting God, it ultimately begins with the gospel. If we have trusted in Jesus Christ, then, then our hearts are naturally going to be generous. But if you've yet to trust in Jesus, then maybe all of this sounds crazy to you. If you've yet to experience the generosity of Jesus, then it's not going to make sense. But maybe this morning, even as we've been talking, and you've heard about this Jesus who, though he was rich, became poor, so that by his poverty, you might be made rich. And maybe you're saying, what's that all about? Let's see what we celebrated in our, the baptisms that we celebrated a few minutes ago, that that Jesus became poor, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. And he ultimately lived this perfect life, but then he died a sinner's death, even though he was without sin, so that we could be forgiven. And anyone who trusts in him, the Bible says, will be saved. And, and so if you have yet to trust in Christ, man, that's, that's where this trust begins. Right, that you can't, you can't trust God with your generosity until you've trusted him with your eternity. And here's my question for you. Who are you trusting with your eternity? Are you trusting yourself? Are you trusting your eternity to yourself? Or are you trusting your eternity to God? Now, I think one of the reasons that we struggle with trust, even as believers, is this. Is we, we put our worth in the wrong things. So we start talking about money, we start talking about possessions, we start talking about things. We get nervous because we're projecting an image. 
Right? My worth is in the car that I drive. It's in the home that I have. It's in the toys that I have. It's in the, the things that I have accumulated. My, my trust, my worth is in my net worth. It's in my bank account. It's in my, my 401k. It's in this. It's in that. But here's, here's what Paul is inviting us, and here's what God's inviting us to today, that your worth is not in what, your own, in what you own. Your worth is in who Jesus says you are. Jesus says that you are loved, you are forgiven, you are redeemed. And because of Jesus, you and I have been made joint heirs with him. What that means is everything that is true of Jesus is true of you. Everything that's true of Jesus is true of me. Not only do we get to know that and we get to believe that, but we get to respond to that. So one of the ways we respond to that is we respond to that through our giving. But another way that we respond to that is through our worship. I mean, giving is worship. Worship is all kinds of things, but it's through our, our singing. And so what we're going to do today is we're, we're going to introduce you to a new song. This song is, um, it's a newer hymn, but it's, it's called My Worth is Not in What I Own. In this song, what this song is, is it is an invitation for you and I to confess together that our worth is not in what we own, Our worth is not in who we are. Our worth is found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. So I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. After we sing, if maybe say, hey, I need to talk to someone about this Jesus. With the end of our service, our next steps team will be down front and they they would love to do just that. They would love to have that conversation with you. Would you pray with me now? Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy to us. Lord, thank you for your invitation to us to trust you, not just with our eternity, but even with our generosity as well. And Father, I I pray this morning that, that we wouldn't think that obedience can wait. That we wouldn't, we wouldn't think that, well, I, I'll be obedient when this happens or I'll be obedient when that happens. No, God, that we would know, we would understand, we would see, we would feel that you have given us everything we need to be obedient to you right now. Father, I pray that you just help us to see it. And Father, I pray that that you would remind us even now that that our worth, it's not in what we own. It's not what we do. It's it's not in what we have. Our worth is found in Jesus Christ and what he has said about us. And if there's anyone in this room who is putting their worth in something other than Jesus, Father, I pray that you would overwhelm their hearts. You would grab their attention and they would trust you this morning. Father, we pray this and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.